If you haven't already done so, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. The focus this morning is going to be that middle section of Stephen's speech uh, where he recounts for us the the life of Moses. But remember the context, remember what's going on here. Uh, Stephen is one of the newly ordained leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He's not an apostle, but he is a minister of the apostolic gospel. And because he is preaching that apostolic gospel, because he is preaching Jesus as the Christ, many of the Jews opposed his ministry. And when they could not uh, defeat him in debate, when they could not silence him uh, with their own arguments, they paid off false witnesses to bring false charges against him. And those, those false charges were basically that he was speaking against both God and against Moses. He was speaking against the temple and he was speaking against the the law. He was speaking against the the place of worship that God had given them and the practices of worship that God had prescribed. Those are the charges that have been brought against Stephen. And it is those charges that he is answering in this speech. And we, we saw how he began to answer those charges last Sunday as he recounted the lives of, of Abraham and, and Joseph. First, he, he demonstrated to the, the council that God's presence had, had never required or been limited to the temple. It had never even been limited to the, the land. For from the beginning, God uh, transcended both the temple and the land. God was with Abraham in Mesopotamia, and he was with, he was with Joseph in Egypt. And therefore, the, the leaders should have known that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. The, the temple was a a pledge. It was a a promise of God's presence, but it was not the guarantee of God's presence. And certainly it was not the only way that God could be present with his people. It was a promise. And Stephen was merely declaring that that promise was now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the fulfillment of the temple. And similarly, the covenant of circumcision was also a promise. We we see this in the fact that that the the circumcision, the the law of circumcision was given to Abraham, but the uh, the land was given to his descendants. Abraham himself received not even a a foot's length in the land. And so again, Stephen is is driving home the point. He said, listen, these things were promises. They they looked forward. They, They anticipated what was to come. And that one to come is Jesus. It is Jesus who is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And we will see that that Stephen continues that theme this morning in his discussion of of the life of Moses. But more and more, he was already on the offensive a little bit. He was already sort of implying a question to the leaders last Sunday. But but more and more he begins to, to go on the offensive, showing that from the very beginning... God has been faithful to his promises, and the people have been unfaithful to his redeemers. They have rejected the one that God has given to bring to fulfillment his promises from the very beginning. Well, we'll see this in the way that, that Stephen uh, talks about the life of Moses. He makes three basic points for us. First, he, he reminds us, he, he shows us clearly that, that, yes, Moses is God's chosen redeemer. He is the, the ruler and the judge that God has given to his people. 
And we will see very clearly that from the very beginning, God's people rejected Moses as ruler and judge. And we will see that just as Sam was saying to the kids, by rejecting God's given Redeemer, they were rejecting God himself. And when you reject God, you end up serving something else. You end up serving idols. That's the logic that, that Stephen is using this morning. So let's, let's follow him through it. He, first, the, the idea that Moses is God's uh, promised Redeemer. He is the one given to God's people to bring to fulfillment his promises. We, we see that from the very beginning, he, he actually begins his, his account of Moses' life with a, a reminder of the promise. Notice how he begins. He says, as the time of the promise drew near. He's preparing us to to hear. He's he's preparing us to understand that that Moses comes as the fulfillment, as as the instrument by which God will fulfill, uh, at least partially, at least initially, the promise that he had made to his people. And this is further reinforced by the fact that that the people were increasing and multiplying while in Egypt. It's a a reminder that, that even in Egypt, even under bondage, they were... Uh, be, they were remembered by God. God was with them. He was, he was causing them to, to increase and multiply, even as he was doing his church in Stephen's day. God was giving growth. He, he never forgot his promise. He was with them the whole time. But nevertheless, even though he was with them, the promise was not yet fulfilled because they were in bondage and they were in Egypt. You, you remember the story. Joseph, who had been uh, made the the second in command in all of Egypt, the the prime minister of of Egypt, had brought his family to to live in Egypt, and they they lived as as welcomed guests. But the time came when a king who did not remember Joseph, that that probably doesn't mean a a king who had never heard of him or didn't know his story, but but most likely a king from a a rival dynasty, a a pharaoh from a different family who, who saw Joseph as an ally to his enemy, and therefore Joseph as his enemy. This king did not remember Joseph. He, he was not friends with Joseph, and so he dealt shrewdly with them, we're told. And he did everything in his power to, to keep them from growing. He did everything in his, in his power to, to subjugate them, even forcing them to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. He wanted to, to wipe them out as a people. And when it was in the midst of that affliction, it was in the midst of, of that hardship, under this, this cruel Pharaoh that we're told Moses was born. And, and notice what we're told about him. We're told that he was beautiful in God's sight. Now, that doesn't mean that he was just a cute baby. It doesn't, doesn't mean that, that his mom thought he was, he was beautiful. To be beautiful in God's sight means that, that God, uh, he had God's favor, he, he had God's delight, God had a, a purpose for his life. He was God's chosen instrument. And because he was beautiful in God's sight, God protected and, and preserved him even in the midst of that affliction. Again, you, you remember the, the story. We don't usually think of it the way that Stephen says it, though, do we? Notice what Stephen says. He says, when he was exposed by his parents. That's not the way we usually think about Moses being put in the little basket out in the the ocean. But but in reality, that's what's going on. They're taking every precaution. They are doing everything they can. They're waterproofing the basket. They're they're putting it where they think it's going to be found. But in the end, they they are 
exposing their child. Because everything they can do is not enough. Everything they can do to protect him cannot save his, his life. And so what has to happen? God has to intervene. And so God steps in. God intervenes. God works through, yes, the, the, the strategies of the parents, but still God works to make sure that Moses is adopted into Pharaoh's household, that Moses is discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, that, that Moses is cherished by Pharaoh's daughter, that Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. God works to, to save the one that is beautiful in his sight. God works to save the one whom he had chosen to be the Redeemer and Savior of His people. And not only did He preserve His life, but He prepared Him for the work that He had had called Him. By by placing Him in Pharaoh's house, He he gave Him access to the best education of the day. He gave Him access to, to everything that He would need to be the leader that God had called Him to be. Notice how, how Stephen describes Him. Moses, or he describes Moses as mighty and word and deed. Now we will come back to that description a, a little bit later because there was somebody else uh, in the uh, New Testament who was described as mighty and word and deed. But, but for now, simply notice that, that God is preparing Moses to be the man he has called him to be. He is, he is working all things out. He is protecting him. He is providing for him. He is, he is uh, preparing him to be the, the leader and the judge of his people. And after all of this preparation, what does he do? He sends Moses to his people. Notice again how Stephen puts it. He says, it came into his heart. It came into his heart to to visit his brothers. Now, now most people see that as a a divine passive. It's not just a, a random thought that occurred to him, but that God placed it in his heart. God gave him the desire to to go and to, to visit his people. God prompted him to do the work that he had been given to do. And the idea of of visiting here means so much more than than we usually think of when we think of a a visit. This isn't just visiting them to to see how they are are doing, but the the language of visit has the idea of coming to their rescue. We, We see this in Genesis chapter 50, when God says that he will visit his people while they are in Egypt, and he will bring them out. To visit is to, is to come to the aid, it is to, it is to redeem, it is to, is to relieve the affliction of. We, we see this same usage in the New Testament when James tells us that this is true religion, that you would visit widows and orphans in their affliction. He's not just saying that you would drop by to see how they were doing, but that, that you would come and provide assistance, that you would lift them up, that you would bring them out of their troubles. That's what Moses is intending to do. It has been brought, God places it in his heart that that he would visit his brothers, that he would rescue them, that he would bring them out of their affliction. And so that's what he sets out to do. And and how does he do it? Well, we we see that he seeks to come to the aid of one of his brothers. One of his his brothers is being afflicted by an Egyptian. This was probably a a common scene as the the Israelites were were slaves in Egypt and they were uh, ruled by taskmasters. It was probably a a common scene to, to see them being oppressed. But on this particular occasion, Moses intervenes, going so far as to kill the oppressor. He, he, he strikes down the Egyptian who was oppressing his brother. 
Now, Stephen is not necessarily suggesting that, that Moses was justified in that action. You can, you can discuss that when you uh, work your way through the book of Exodus. But, but rather, what Stephen is emphasizing here is, is Moses' intention. What is it that Moses was trying to do? He was trying to visit his brothers in their affliction. He was, he was trying to, to come to their rescue. He was trying to defend the oppressed. In fact, he thought that they would see that God was providing them with salvation through him. He recognized uh, that he had been given this, this position of privilege. He, he recognized that he had been prepared for this work, and he set out to do it. He set out to come to the aid of his brothers. He knew his calling, and he hoped that his brothers would see it too. But of course, we know that they did not. Instead, the next day, when he, when he tried to intervene between two Hebrews who were fighting, the one who was in the wrong said to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? Who gave you the right to be the ruler and judge? And again, think of how that language of judge is used in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it's the language of a Savior. The judges were the ones uh, that God uh, raised up to deliver his people from affliction. And we, and we know that's what Stephen has in mind because when, when he uses the phrase later, uh, referring to this very question, he actually changes the terminology. He says, this man God, this man God sent to be both ruler and redeemer. God sent Moses to be the ruler and the redeemer of his people. God chose Moses to be his instrument by which he would keep his promises. By which he, had, he would do for them what he had promised to do. God sent him to be ruler and redeemer. God sent him to be ruler and judge. But of course the people didn't see it. They, they didn't see it. They, they thrust Moses aside for the first time. And Moses, realizing that, that he had alienated himself from Egypt and, and was not being received by the Israelites, he had nowhere to go, and so he fled for his life to Midian, we're told, where he, he stayed long enough to get married and have a couple of sons. But even in Midian, God was with him. And eventually God appeared to him and sent him back to Egypt, sent him back yet again to visit his brothers in their affliction. You, you know the story. God appears to Moses in a, in a burning bush, a, a flame of fires in the bush, but the bush is, bush is not consumed. And, and Moses recognizes that this is, this is no ordinary fire. This is, there, there's something extraordinary going on. And so he, he approaches the bush and, and God speaks to him from the bush saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the, the God of, of Jacob, the God who made the promises is the God who is now speaking to you. And again, notice what he says. He says, and because I'm here, the place where you are standing is holy. Because I'm here, Midian is holy ground. That's the same language that the, the Jewish leaders had, had used to describe the, the temple, this holy place. Stephen is reminding them that, that holy, uh, the holiness of the land is dependent upon the presence of God. Where God is, is holy. And so again, the, the reminder is being pushed out there that, that, that God's presence is not confined to the temple. God's presence is what makes the temple holy. Because wherever God is, is holy, even if it is in Midian. 
But the main point here that, that Stephen wants to drive home is there beginning in, in verse 34. He says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning. I have seen and I have heard. I'm watching. I'm paying attention. I've, I've heard their groaning. I've seen their affliction. And now notice, I have come. I have come to deliver them. God is keeping his promise. God is, is visiting his people in Egypt, but notice how he is going to do it. He says, I have come down to deliver them, and I am sending you. I have come to deliver them, and I am sending you to be the instrument by which I will bring them out. Moses is God's chosen instrument. Moses is the one through whom God will keep his promises. Moses is the one who will serve as the ruler and the redeemer of God's people. I have come, and I am sending you. That's what Stephen wants the, uh, the, the council to see. He wants them to remember who Moses was. Moses was God's appointed redeemer. In fact, he says this explicitly in, in verse 35. He says, this Moses, this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. God himself sent Moses. And not only did God send Moses, but he used Moses. For it was by the hand of Moses that, that God led them out of Egypt, performing wonders and, and signs in, in Egypt. Remember the, the ten plagues that were, were the demonstrations of God's power and reign over all the powers of Egypt. The, the, the ten plagues by which he defeated Egypt and, and rescued and redeemed his people. God used Moses to, to, to bring his people out. Then he used him again to, to bring them across the Red Sea. Then he used them again to, to lead them in the wilderness for, for 40 years. And it was through this same Moses that, that God had, had given to his people living oracles. I don't have time to explore it for, fully this morning, but just think about the wonder of that phrase. God gave to his people living words. It, it echoes what the disciples said about Jesus, does it not? Where else could we go? He has the words of life. The life-giving words. The, the living oracles. They were given to the people through Moses. Because he was the chosen ruler and redeemer. He was the one that God had appointed to that task. And yet, the people thrust him aside yet again. They did not listen to him. The, the first time that he visited his people, we, we saw this earlier, they, they rejected him saying, who made you ruler and judge? But then again, in the wilderness, after the, the exodus, they, they refused to obey him, we're told in verse 39. Our, our fathers refused to obey him, but instead they turned back to Egypt in their hearts. And the evidence that they returned to Egypt, the evidence that they returned to their slavery, the evidence that they, they refused to, to become the people of God, that evidence is that they asked Aaron to make for them a golden calf. You remember again the, the story. They said, we don't know what's happened to this Moses. We, we don't know what happened to this guy that, that, that led us out of, out of Egypt. We, we need you to make for us a golden calf that, that we might worship and that it might lead us. 
And Stephen says, in this they were rejecting Moses. But more than that, in rejecting Moses, they were rejecting God. And this is a pattern that would repeat itself throughout Israel's history. Again and again, the people would reject the the ones that God sent as the instruments of His faithfulness, as as the the means by which He would keep His promises. So much so that that Amos can say in the, the book of the prophets, Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Again, the the question does not mean that they did not offer sacrifices at all. Rather, the charge that Amos is bringing is that the sacrifices that they brought were actually sacrifices to other gods because their hearts were not right. Because their hearts were not inclined towards the one true God. It's not that they formally offered sacrifices to other gods. But because of the, uh, the inclination of their hearts, because their hearts were turned towards Egypt... They did not properly worship the true God, but rather worshipped the idols of the day. Their hearts turned to the gods of Canaan and to the gods of of Egypt. They they worshipped the the gods that were around them, the gods of the, the culture of their day, because they had rejected the one true living God by rejecting His ruler and Redeemer. And that's what Stephen wants to make clear to the council. That's what, that's what Stephen wants them to see. He wants them to see this, this pattern that has, that has been in place from the very beginning of Israel's history. That God's people have, have again and again rejected God's redeemers. And in rejecting God's redeemers, they have rejected God Himself and ended up serving idols. And that's exactly what Stephen is warning the Jewish leaders is about to happen again. He says, because this Moses, this Moses told you that another one was coming. This Moses told you that God would raise up yet another prophet like me. And the, and the parallels between Moses and, and Jesus are just hammered home by Stephen through, throughout the text. We've, we've already seen that he describes Moses as mighty in word and deed. But remember, it was Jesus who was described as mighty in word and deed by the first disciples. It was, it was Jesus whose, whose word who spoke with, with unusual authority. It was, it was Jesus who, who did mighty works amongst the people. It was Jesus whom they saw as mighty in word indeed, because he was God's ruler and redeemer. He was the the leader and the savior of his people, even as Peter himself had said when on trial before this same council. God had made him to be the leader and the savior of his people. And he is the one whom Moses spoke about. He is the the one like Moses who would be raised up. He is the one in whom God would not just begin to fulfill His promises, but the one who would be the ultimate fulfillment, the one in whom all the promises would find their yes and amen. That is what Stephen wants the the council to see. That just as the, the previous generations had thrust aside Moses and ended up serving idols, That this generation, if they thrust aside Jesus, if they thrust aside the the appointed Redeemer and Ruler, they will themselves end up serving idols. They cannot serve God and reject Jesus. 
And so again, it's the same point he was making last Sunday. He, he is again driving home the point. He says, listen, it is not me who is speaking against God. It is not me who is speaking against the temple. It is not me who is speaking against the law or against Moses. All of these things were meant to, to bring us to Jesus. He is the fulfillment. He is the, the one like Moses, only greater. And so if you reject him, you reject God. And if you reject God, you will end up serving idols. And that same warning stands for us in the church today. Jesus is God's appointed ruler and redeemer. He is Lord and Savior. We've been talking about in our, in our confession of faith how we, we escape the judgment and the curse that is due to us for sin. And it is through faith and repentance, it is, it is through believing and turning to God in faith, turning from our sin back to God, receiving and, and resting upon Him alone for our salvation. And Stephen wants us to know that there is no other way. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. If we reject Jesus, we reject God and we will end up serving idols. For, for Jesus is the leader. He is the ruler. And so think about what that means. If you reject him as Lord, if you reject him as, as ruler, if you reject him as, as leader, then you must of necessity end up serving someone else. Someone else will command your life. Someone else will, will hold your highest allegiance. And that someone else will not be God. If you reject Jesus as Lord, you will end up serving idols. And if you reject Jesus as, as Savior, you will end up looking for your safety and your security elsewhere. You will look, you will look to the, the idols of the day. They may not be the, the idols of Moloch or, or Rephim as they were in, in the, the days of the Israelites. It's not the gods of Canaan or the, or the gods of Egypt that tempt us today, but it's the, the gods of our own culture. Where do we look for security? Where do we look for, for safety? We, we look to, to our finances. We look to economics. We look to, to politics. We look to all of these things and we say, in these things we will find our life. In these things we will protect ourselves. In these things we will have salvation. If we reject Jesus as our Savior, if we, if we reject Him as, as the one in whom our, our life is safe, then we will look for that safety and security elsewhere. And of course, if we reject Jesus as the one who has the words of life, the, the life-giving words, the living oracles, then we will end up looking for our joy and our satisfaction. We will end up looking for our life elsewhere, in possessions or in pleasures or in power or prestige, whatever it may be. We will look for our life elsewhere. The warning is, is there. The same warning that, that Stephen is, is giving to the, the council of his day is a, is a warning for us today because it still is true. Jesus is the ruler and the redeemer. He is the one whom God sent. He is the one whom God appointed. He is the one whom God prepared. He is the one through whom God worked. Not to bring the people up out of Egypt, but to bring them out of sin and death. Remember, it was Jesus' death and resurrection which was called His exodus. Through His death and resurrection, He brings us out, not out of slavery in Egypt, but out of the ultimate slavery of sin. God has used Him. 
He has seen our our, our affliction. He has heard our groaning. And he has sent Jesus as the, the Savior. But if we reject him, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. If we reject him, there is salvation to be found nowhere else. If we reject him, we reject God, and we will end up serving idols. But the promise of the gospel is this. If you will receive him, if you will rest upon him, then he will not turn you away. If you call upon his name, you will never be put to shame. For all who receive him as Lord, all who rest upon him for salvation, they shall be saved. And more than that, They shall have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance in the land to come. In him we will have eternal life, the the life of the coming kingdom. Because in him all the promises of God are fulfilled. And because he is offered to us freely, because he is received by faith alone, that is why we recall this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in the the wonder of the grace that you have lavished on us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father God, we are sometimes tempted to to reject Him. We are are sometimes tempted to to go our own way and to to look for life and and security and, and salvation in other places. Protect us from such foolishness, Father. May we not dig broken cisterns that hold no water, but may you teach us by your grace to drink deeply of the fountain of living water and in him receive new life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.